Dear fathers, we come before you today. We pray that you will help us to understand your word and to see how it keeps pointing to Jesus, how to be saved and how to live under Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now when I was quite a young Christian, I remember someone asking a question in the sermon which really struck me and this was the question. He asked the, the question in the sermon, are you reading the Bible as a Jew or as a Christian? Now, I was really struck by the question because as a young Christian, I never thought there was a difference between reading the Bible as a Jew or as a Christian. Is there a difference between reading the Bible as a Jewish person or as a Christian? And if there was a difference, I wouldn't know at that point in time. But I've come to realize that it's a very, very important question and the answer is very important as well because if we are not reading the Bible as it was meant to be read as Christians, then we are not reading it in a way which holds it together. There's no glue which holds the Bible together. There's no direction. There is no goal in the Bible. And the same way, if we don't read the Bible properly as a Christian, then when we apply the Bible as well, we will apply it randomly and wrongly. So how are we to read the Bible as Christians? Now I think the first point, actually this is just a three-point sermon, if you look at the, the outline, just three points that I want you to get from today's passage. The first thing is, we must understand that God's Word in Scripture, the Bible, fundamentally bears witness to Jesus. Okay, That's the first point that you must get out of the Bible. If you leave today and you want to just remember one thing, it is the Bible is pointing towards Jesus. Now in John chapter 5, verse 37, there are quite a few passages today, so I'll ask you to be a bit patient and to apply your minds to what I'm saying. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the Jews and he said, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So, right from the very beginning in Jesus' words, if you read the Bible as a Jew, then you just read it without Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is that God who has given us his word, God who has given us Jesus, has actually given us his word to point, to testify and to bear witness to his son Jesus so that we may have life. So I remember when I was very young, I don't know about you, if you can think back, who, you know, when was the first time someone gave you a Bible? You know, sometimes... Maybe it's a grandparent or a parent or a friend or something. And I remember in 1982, my, my great, my, sorry, my grandmother gave me my first Bible. Uh, I found it the other day because I was moving house. And it's, it's really old. It's got watermarks everywhere. It's an old King James Bible. And I remember she gave it to me and she even described on it. So that's how I know it's 1982. But I remember when I first got it, first of all, it was in King James. So I, I was like very confused at how to read it. But when I picked it up, I couldn't understand where do I start? Where do I end? What is the point of reading it? You know, what is it that holds it together? What is the plot? And when you think about it, for those of us who are Christians for many years, we are very familiar with the Bible, so we think it's quite straightforward to understand. But if you come to the Bible for the very first time, it's actually a very complicated book. 
It's made of lots and lots of different types of books and types of different genre. Right? So if you think, look up here, just a few types of literature which is included in the Bible, like the historical books, talking about Israel and the kings, and then the legal books, which talk about the law, there's poetry, there is wisdom, there is prophetic books, there are apocalyptic books, there are gospels which talk about Jesus, there are letters to churches, there are letters to individuals. So, when you read the Bible, it's very easy to get lost. And, you know, where do we start? Where do we go? Where does it hold together? And Jesus said in that passage that He is the glue, right? It's like, I was going to put a big picture of a big glue thing, but I thought it would be too childish, right? Jesus is the glue and the goal and the direction of the Bible. So, that's the first thing we need to remember as we read through the Bible we need to always remember that it is pointing towards Jesus. So how does that do that? Well, if you look in the Bible, it's very important for us to see that when we read it, ultimately it is pointing to Jesus. So, if you think about it, the historical books and the legal books which contain the law uh, were believed to be written by Moses. Okay, The first five books of the Bible were believed to be written by Moses. But it's very easy for us to, when we read the first five books of the Bible, think that it's about the law, it's about Israel. But really it's not about the law, it's not about Israel, it's about Jesus Christ. And that's where when we did the responsive reading today, Jesus again rebuked uh, the, 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 the Jews and said, Look, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? See, you notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that Moses, in the first five books of the Bible, which contain the law and the history, are actually pointing towards Jesus. So I remember my uncle, uh, I tried to evangelize him. Remember the one we prayed for? He lives in Switzerland. He had the throat cancer. Then he was miraculously cured. I remember I asked him, you know, I tried to challenge him about uh, being a Christian. He said, I'm already a Christian. And I said, why, why are you a Christian? He said, because I keep the Ten Commandments. But you see, when you say that sort of thing, when you say, I'm a Christian because I kept the Ten Commandments, you're actually not reading the Bible properly. You're still reading it like a Jew. You think, to be acceptable to God, I keep the Ten Commandments. But actually what Jesus is saying is, it's actually pointing towards me. Because as we look at God's word, we see the failure of God's people over and over again to keep the law. The inability of God's people to keep the law. The inability of God's people to live faithfully before God. And that's why Jesus, when he says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You see, when we look at the Old Testament, we're not meant to see that the way to God is by the law, or the temple system, or the worship structure. But we are meant to see that because Israel are unable to keep the law or the temple structure, 
it is actually pointing forward to someone like Jesus who will. And that's why when you look at Jesus Christ, He is so remarkable, because not only does He fulfill the law, but He Himself is the priest. He Himself is the temple. So again, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is the eternal high priest, to which all the priests who died year after year were pointing to. But not only was Jesus the priest, he himself is even greater than the priest. He is the temple himself. So in John chapter 2, it says, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So you notice here that Jesus, again, is what the Bible is pointing to. The law is pointing to Jesus. The history of Israel is pointing to Jesus. The priestly system is pointing to Jesus. The temple system is pointing to Jesus. So I don't know about you, but when I visit churches, sometimes I've been to churches where people say, when they come into church, right, at the beginning of the service, they'll say, Welcome to the temple of God. Have you ever been to a church where they've said that? Welcome to the temple of God. But when you speak like that, when you use those words, when you use that sort of imagery, you're actually speaking like a Jew rather than as a Christian. Because the temple of God is no longer the physical building, but rather it is is Jesus Christ. So you can't say this is the temple of God because we are all residing in the temple of God wherever we are because we are in Jesus Christ. So, sorry, it's uh, overloading you a bit. Okay, next slide. So, in the prophetic books as well, it's not just the law or the history which points to Jesus, but the prophetic books themselves point forward to a Messiah who was going to come as the Christ. So again, in the book of Luke, chapter 4, when Jesus went to Nazareth where he was brought up, on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah which was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the descendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now you notice here that the prophetic books themselves point forward also to Jesus. Because it sees that history and the future are actually linear. It's actually moving forward to be testifying to Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is not like some religions which believe that the history keeps repeating itself, that it's circular. So you know you die, then you rise again, you die, you rise again. And history keeps repeating itself. There is no there is no direction, there's no goal in history. But the Bible actually God's word speaks very differently that there is a direction, there is a goal in history, and is moving towards Jesus Christ. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this is the diagram which I have in front of me when I'm actually preparing my sermon to remind myself, right? So you can come to my house, you can see this diagram. So next slide. All of these things, whenever we read the Bible, ultimately it is pointing towards Jesus Christ. Now, it's not saying that every verse you read is going to refer to Jesus Christ. But the sum total of the Bible and its ideas and its pictures and its theology and its doctrine is pointing towards Jesus. Now, one of the problems that we have is that instead of reading the Bible as we should and pointing towards Jesus, what some people do is we read it as Jewish people. Next slide. And we just take the verses and we apply them without any direction. Right? We're just sort of taking the verses and we're just looking at it in isolation without seeing the direction which it's going to. Now, I, will, I thought it was very helpful if I could give you a modern day example. So, uh, a few years ago, you might remember, this book was very popular, The Prayer of Jabez. Where, basically, it took The Prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles, next slide, and it said that if you pray this prayer 40 days in a row, God will enlarge uh, your territory, God will enlarge or reward you for whatever you prayed for. So let's, uh, re- let's uh, examine this prayer for a moment. Uh, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this a prayer that we as Christians can pray? Right? Think about it. Think about it. Maybe it's the next question. Next slide. If you were to take this prayer and say, let's pray, pray it for 40 days in a row, are we reading the Bible as a Christian person or as a Jewish person? So think about it for a, question, a second. If you were to take this prayer and pray for 40 days, are you reading the Bible as a Christian or as a Jewish person? Well, it would be as a Jewish person, a modern day Jewish person, many thousands of years removed from that time. Because the prayer of Jabez is based on a time where God's people were the Jews. God's place was the promised land. God's kingdom was Israel. But these things were just the interim. They were actually pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Because there is no modern day equivalent to 
the, the Israel of the Bible is not a theocracy. There is no house of David ruling in Israel today. The, the, the failure of Israel in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ as the king. Now, if you actually look at the Bible, you'll see that we live as Christians in a different kingdom. And we have a different king. And the promises of God are no longer that if we live in the promised land and we are obedient, that God will bless us. In fact, the Bible says very clearly that with the coming of Jesus, He is bringing the kingdom which the prayer of Jabez time failed. So look at what it says in Luke chapter 1. It says, But the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be a child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And again in Matthew chapter 12, it says, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, but now one greater than Solomon is here. Can you see what's happening here? That the prayers of Jabez in the past are of a fallen kingdom, an imperfect kingdom, a kingdom which was never the fulfillment of God's plan, but was always looking forward to Jesus, the, the greater king, the eternal king, who would bring his kingdom. So as Christians, we don't pray the prayer of Jabez because we no longer live in Israel under God's promises that he will bless and enlarge our territory. But we live now in a new time, in the time of Jesus, our King. So I, I thought, okay, to visualize it a bit more and to bring it home. It's a bit like a uh, next slide. Okay, you, you've seen that diagram already? Okay, so imagine instead of reading the Bible and pointing towards Jesus as the cross, at the cross as the direction, the goal, and the glue, imagine if you just take the passage and you just take it out and read it, with, you know, outside of the direction and the goal and the glue of the Bible. What does that really mean? So it's a bit like, okay, uh, this is my own illustration, so I don't know whether it works very well. Imagine you're on Earth and you're trying to take a rocket ship to the moon. Okay, that is the trajectory and the direction that you're supposed to go in. But then, you know, you decide that you don't like going to the moon, so you steer your rocket ship somewhere else. Then what will happen to you in the end, right? Well, okay, I, I borrowed this picture from gravity. So you'll be lost in space, right? Because you're not going to where you're supposed to be. You, you, you've, you've taken yourself out of the trajectory of the direction in which you're supposed to go to. And that's exactly what happens when you take the Bible and you don't read it as fulfilling itself in Jesus as having its goal in Jesus as the direction of Scripture. Because as we see in these passages, all of Scripture, right? remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's actually pointing towards Jesus. And that's the way that God has actually made the Bible to be read. So that's the first way we are to read the Bible, in its fulfillment in Jesus. The second way is also, if you look in your bulletins, 
is that the Bible fundamentally is about salvation and eternal life. So what is the purpose of the Bible? If the Bible is about Jesus, then what is the purpose for us as we read the Bible? What is it for? Why am I reading it? Is it just for entertainment? Is it to know about Middle Eastern history thousands of years ago? Is it about geography? Is it about science? What is the purpose of the Bible? What is it meant to achieve when people read it? Well, the purpose is, it is for salvation for eternal life. That's what the Bible itself says. So, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, But as for you, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? That is the purpose of Scripture, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, John chapter 5, we've read this before. All right. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the Jews, look, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life, eternal life. And again, in 1 Peter 1, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke about the grace of that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would come, so it would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. So what is the purpose of Scripture? Salvation, eternal life. Now, one of the mistakes that we can have is that we use the Bible and we, we try to find a different purpose. So we think, okay, we use the Bible as a manual for family life, for raising children, for business ethics, or even um, for success. See, the Bible has one very clear purpose for us. Salvation eternal life. We must never forget that. You see, I remember um, there was a Christian that I, I knew many, many years ago. And he came to church for quite a while. But at some stage, he stopped coming to church. And I remember meeting up and talking to him and visiting him. And he said, oh, you know, I, I, don't, want the, I don't want to come to church anymore because I always thought that God was about love. And God was about making me feel good and, and, and success. But then, ever since he started learning from the Old Testament, he said, God is an angry God. God is a judging God. God is a God of judgment. Well, that's exactly right, isn't it? Because what is God going to save you from? Is God going to save you from poverty? God going to save you from uh, bad, uh, bad ache? 
is God going to save you from uh, um, disappointment in life? No, He's not. Because the whole point is, the Bible's purpose is salvation for eternal life. And we know that that only happens because there is judgment and God's wrath. See, one of the main problems today is people are not using the Bible for its purpose, which is salvation and eternal life. Instead, they're using the Bible for success. So here, I I used this slide before. And uh, it's at the back of one of the books that uh, is very popular. You can find it even at Kunukonia and stuff like that. And it's talking about how God's plan for you really is about blessings, fulfillment and success. And if you open the Bible, the Bible, sorry, if you open this book, it's full of Bible quotes about how God wants you to be successful, blessed and fulfilled. There's another book, okay, again, about how to have a successful life, to have a good life, to start living your dreams. And again, if you open this book, it's full of passages from the Bible. But the problem is, is that it's not actually fulfilling the purpose of the Bible, which is salvation for eternal life. And when you misuse the Bible this way, you don't get the purpose of the Bible right. You actually do not fulfill what God has written the Bible for. So, uh, again, I was unpacking my, my stuff and I found this old small little pamphlet that someone gave me many years ago and I only just read it. I'm very, I don't know if you gave it to me. I'm very sorry. I only just read it. Um, but it says, On my way to heaven, facing death with Christ by Mark Ashton. And this guy was a very prominent preacher. I think he served in this church in Cambridge or Cambridge for 26 years. And I felt very sad for him because he went on a sabbatical in New Zealand and in the middle of his sabbatical, he found out that he had terminal bladder cancer, which was inoperable. And he was only given a few months to live. But what he writes in here is that when he was sick, it was so disappointing because whenever he spoke to Christians, the Christians had the same response to his condition as the non-Christians did. Which was, what a great shame it was that he was going to die. He should go for healing. He should do whatever he can to heal himself and to get a few more years to live. And what he said was that what he realized was that for many Christians, we think exactly like non-Christians in terms of death. But he says that that is because people have forgotten the heart of the Bible is about salvation and about eternal life and about resurrection. And in one section of his book, he says that if you read the book of Acts, in the early preaching of the, of the apostles, they always preach resurrection. Salvation, resurrection, salvation, resurrection. In fact, if you look up here on the slide, he said that when they were in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, they used the word resurrection so much in Greek, which is Anastasia, that the people actually thought that they were preaching multiple gods. Jesus Christ and Anastasia. Right? Because they kept using the word resurrection, 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 salvation. But that's what the Bible is about. It's about salvation, resurrection, eternal life. 
So that's the second thing that we crucially need to remember when we read the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible? Salvation for eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is the main reason why we read the Bible, not because it wants to tell us about how to be successful, how to be happy, right? but salvation through Jesus Christ for eternal life. So lastly, the last point, I think the Bible also tells us not just about eternal life and salvation and points to Jesus, but it also tells us how to live in Jesus. What does it mean that we are now to live a righteous life in Jesus Christ? So again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again in Luke chapter 24, which was read to us by Pokim, he told them this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to his, in, in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, you cannot live in Jesus Christ for the salvation of eternal life unless you live a righteous, holy life repentance and in good works. So that's what the Bible is actually teaching us. You know, when we read about the Old Testament, uh, when we read about people in the Bible, they serve as a barometer, as an example of God's holiness and what is important for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you look at this passage, it's very long. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now, as Christians, we believe in a fixed ethic or morality. God is unchanging. So God's holiness in the Old Testament is the same holiness today. We live in a world which has a dynamic or a flexible morality and ethic. Okay, I was just uh, having a discussion with Nick. What's Nick? Because he's philosophy, right? So he likes to talk philosophy with me. And he was saying how actually many philosophers, and in fact the world today, sees morality, good and bad, as a evolving, progressive thing. So give, let me give you an example. I was reading on the internet the other day how it was in the newspaper, I think in America, quite a prominent newspaper, saying how that today, today's generation, 
looks down at their forefathers in the past because their for, our forefathers or their forefathers rejected homosexuality. Right, so if you if you watch one of the Academy Awards, uh, Sean Penn, very famous actor, said the same thing. He says, you know, your children will look down on you because of your attitudes to homosexuality. So anyway, the writer in the newspaper was saying, in the same way, future generations will look down on this generation because they will accept uh, plural marriage. That means multiple marriage partners. So you see what's happening here. This is the worldview of society. That morality, ethic, good and bad, changes through time, evolves through time. What is right today will become wrong tomorrow. What is wrong today can become right in the future. Because each generation will choose their own ethic, their own morality, what is good and bad. But when we come to the Bible, the Bible actually doesn't have a dynamic flexible, progressive morality or ethic. It is fixed. Right? God hates sex outside of marriage. It doesn't change. God hates uh, idolatry. That doesn't change. It is, it is an example for us, whether it's thousands of years ago or whether it's today. So that's why when we come to the Bible, as we read God's Word, it also teaches us how do we live as Christians? How do we live in repentance in Christ? But more than that, the Bible actually speaks very, very clearly on areas of how we are to live. And if you look at this diagram, I remember this diagram somewhere, but it was very helpful for me. You'll see that actually when Jesus teaches, he actually brings a new ethic. So he, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke about murder. He spoke about adultery, lust, anger, lying. And he actually, he actually taught a higher ethic, a more demanding ethic. It's not just touching a woman. If you look at a woman lustfully, you're committing adultery with her in your heart. It's not just physically murdering someone, but if you are angry with that person, in your, in your mind enough to hate that person, then you've committed murder in your heart. So again, the Bible is very clear, isn't it? That Jesus teaches us how to live a holy life, a righteous life, before him in repentance, in the kingdom of Jesus. So look at what Jesus says in this very famous uh, parable. Right? All the kids know about this. Um, it says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So as we come to the end of the sermon, basically there are three things that we get out of the Bible. One is the direction, the goal, the glue of the Bible is pointing towards Jesus. The purpose of the Bible is for salvation and eternal life. And also, it teaches us how do we live in God's kingdom? How do we live as Christians? In conclusion, I remember Nick, uh, the guy who's leading service today, our MTS 
person. He, he, he to- told me something recently. He said, you know what the Bible stands for? You know, it's an acronym. The Bible stands for Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. Okay, so I never heard that before. So I thought, oh, that's really good. Man, I must remember that. Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. And I thought, that actually sums it up quite well, isn't it? Because if it is the basic instruction before we leave earth, then the direction, the glue on the goal of the Bible is about Jesus. Its purpose is to teach us about salvation and eternal life. And it teaches us how to live a holy and repentant life as we prepare for Jesus' return. So let's read the Bible as Christians and not as Jewish people because the time of David, the kingdom, Israel has passed and we are now living in the time of Jesus as our king. We are looking forward not to the old Jerusalem, but the heavenly Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. So let's really read the Bible as God has meant it for us to be read. In its fulfillment in Jesus, in about salvation and eternal life, and about how to live a righteous life in God's kingdom. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for you have not kept silent before us. We are not groping to find you or to know you or to hear from you because you've given us your word, your scripture in the Bible. We pray that we may read it rightly to see that it all, the law, the prophets, are pointing towards Jesus, your Son. And dear Father, He is the direction, the goal, the glue of your Word. Help us to see that the purpose for us as we read your Word is not about success or fulfillment or blessing or living our dreams, but of salvation, resurrection, eternal life. And dear Father, help us to heed the teaching, the rebuke and the correcting of your word that we may live repentant and holy lives before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.